Our podcast is sponsored by the University of St. Joseph, whose master's degree programs help K-12 teachers improve outcomes for their students and improve employability and salary potential for themselves. Our podcast is also supported in part by the Solutions Journalism Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to rigorous and compelling reporting on the responses to social problems. This is Steady Habits, the Connecticut Mirror podcast that takes a look at life here in the land of Steady Habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. It's part two of our back to school special. Yesterday, you may have noted that we took a look at what's happening on college campuses with students going back to school. Today, it's K through 12 schools, and it's pretty fair to say that we don't know what this school year is going to look like. It's less than a month away. Governor Ned Lamont had been saying for quite some time that the plan was for Connecticut's K through 12 schools to return to fully in person classes in the fall. But early last week, he reversed course, saying that it would be up to individual districts to make that determination about whether to do in-person learning, remote learning, or some combination of the two. That has caused some confusion among many parents. But the problems presented by remote learning are really acute for low-income parents and students who are significantly less likely to have broadband access. Our education reporter, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, has been detailing these realities, and that during what's being called the lost school year that ended earlier this summer, some districts saw a massive drop-off in attendance when COVID forced classes online. Last Tuesday, just after the state had announced the towns can determine their own plans, I hosted a coffee conversation on this issue with Jackie and also with Miguel Cardona, the Education Commissioner for Connecticut, and Ryan Brown, he's a middle school teacher from Bridgeport. Over the course of our conversation, you will hear some questions that came from our online audience that day as we talk about the digital divide, what's expected of teachers and parents in this new world, and how teaching might change forever. I started by asking Ryan to tell me what the end of last semester was like for him, teaching middle school in the Bridgeport School District in the middle of a pandemic. Like I teach seventh grade math, and so a lot of the, the discussion that I was having during class uh, was pretty rigorous at the time. And so when we moved from classroom learning to distance learning, I had to unfortunately drop a little bit of um, how rigorous I could go and how deep I could go with certain lessons uh, because I know that there was going to be a little bit of a, um, a drop in terms of what, I, what I'm able to do from my house to reach the students. Um, and that's just from my perspective you know, I, I don't have a, a smart board at my house. I don't have, you know, those items at my house. And so I know that there are certain things I could not show. And so that kind of dropped the rigor down for students. Um, in terms of attendance, you know, um, you know, I would say most of my students would come to school each and every day. Um, but then when we started to do distance learning, there was that sort of natural drop off that was sort of magnified because of the access before COVID even happened. You know, there was no, there was little to no access to technology before COVID happened um, due to, you know, how education is funded and just in general for urban districts. And so when COVID happened, then there was that drop off where it was like, okay, now students that don't have access, they also don't have access to their education. And that's the only way they could get it. You know, when we have other districts that with families who have that income 
um, if you look at like the district, the, uh, the district uh, reference groups in terms of how much income, what the median income is for each district reference group, there's almost a $100,000 drop between um, families in district group A and then all the way down uh, to the last dist district reference group. And so that means that there are families who have to spend money on uh, rent on bills, on food, on clothes, and things like that. And they don't have that extra income to say, all right, here's a device, now you could do your distance learning. Whereas in other districts, they already had it in place because they had that income. They could they could fund their students and their children's education. Mm. Um, so that's what we were kind of experiencing on, on my end. And Ryan, I should ask you too, you, you maybe didn't have some of the tools at home yourself. I'm wondering if you can talk about that, about how you and your colleagues were trained and what technology you had, because you know the students obviously had this these barriers. They weren't used to any of this, but I'm going to gather most of you weren't really prepared for this either. Yeah, I think that's the the general consensus for um, not just my like my colleagues, but a lot of other colleagues in the district as well. Is that a lot of people did not know that the technology was available to them for them to use. And a lot of it had to do with uh, device access. I knew that we had um, bought the Microsoft suite because we had devices and we had Chromebooks in our rooms for our grades. And so, um, and when I say our grade, I mean like my grade seventh and um, eighth grade as well. And so I knew about the technology, I knew how to use it. And so what happened was I ended up showing other staff members how to use the technology as well and how to navigate Microsoft Teams, how to conduct their classrooms through um, live teaching, et cetera, et cetera. And they ended up being able to figure it out pretty quickly. Hmm. Um, but I think there was a little bit of a time loss between when distance learning started and then when we, when we were able to fully uh, put out the education program through Microsoft Teams. And I think that's that's part of the problem was that they didn't know it was available because the students didn't have access to the devices to mm -hmm. be able to use the technology that was available. Well, let me turn to the commissioner. And as you um, hear some of what Ryan's saying, Commissioner Cardona, what are some what are some takeaways from you? Obviously, there's that um, education gap that pre-existed COVID. There's the technology gap which pre-existed COVID, and there's probably a, a learning and uh, technology gap that a lot of the teachers had. As you are assessing what happened at the end of this past school year, as COVID shut down schools, what are some of your big takeaways? Even before it started, let's not forget that Connecticut has some of the worst achievement gaps in the country. Um, you know, there's nothing in those data as sad as they make me that surprises me. There, COVID and, and the effects of COVID exacerbated the issues, but you saw the gaps that were there before COVID and that we should have a sense of urgency and uh, uh, will to address those. When we talk about disparities, it's not limited to education. Health access disparities, um, income disparities, housing disparities. And I remember where I was when I heard that black and brown people are dying at a greater rate. And, you know, that hit me differently because I know that some of the fear and some of the concerns with returning have a lot to do with that as well. I know that um, in many of our 
urban communities, there are uh, multi-generational families. So it's important to think about gaps, not only with education, but also uh, what people are thinking about with regard to um, their susceptibility to COVID and the long-term impacts on their family and the anxiety that that produces. Um, so there's no easy solution here. There's no one, this is the best, you know, we're learning as we go along. But I want to bring up something that um, I think it was glaring in the data. We're in a health pandemic, but we're also in an education emergency. We're in a situation now where, you know, when students lose learning, and despite the best efforts of teachers like Ryan and others who have done everything in their power, spent their own money to try to get kids connected, students are losing out on academics, but also that social emotional piece, that community. And we have a responsibility to try to connect that as best we can while promoting those same health, because at the end of the day, we also know that in some of these same communities, the risk is greater. So I just wanted to bring out the fact that, yes, we're in a health pandemic, but this is also an education emergency that we, we have to accelerate our efforts because COVID accelerated disparities. We have to really double down and put our heads together to do what's best for kids and for the community. And that includes making sure that health and safety stay at the top of, of the conversation. Well, if we treat this like an emergency, Commissioner, let's let's talk about as we head into planning for this next school year, what steps you think are most important to take right now? Obviously, we've only had a couple months of learning, so we're not going to know everything about what to do. But if we're going to treat this as an educational emergency, what are a few top things that you think absolutely need to happen in order to make this a more successful school year for kids? Provide in-school opportunities as best you can with health and safety as the primary, but also simultaneously not either or, plan for a robust distance learning, remote learning process that will likely continue for the remainder of education while we're on, you know, while we're here, right? So I don't ever think we're gonna go back to a fully, I think we're gonna continue with a, high, a blended model moving forward. Um, you know, there were some districts that were already experimenting with blended learning where students didn't have to have uh, the seat time in the building. Um, I, I think we need to be look at this as an opportunity to redefine what education looks like and question some of those things that we've said we have to do, such as seat time in the in the buildings. You know, um, so specifically, we need to identify how we can get students into the school as many students as possible safely. Uh, and, and I use the word safely, you know, because that's generally where I go. But we know that there is no way we can reduce risk 100%. You know, it, it's hard to communicate that um, because it, it takes a lot to, to let that sink in. But as much as um, there are risks for us to go to get gas or go to the store, you know, there's some risk in everything that we do. We know that there's also risk in not doing things. You know, we, we've seen students that 25% that uh, Jackie talked about that are not connected, you know, they may be outdoors, they may be unsupervised. There are risks there, um, not to mention the academic risks. So wherever possible, bring students in and looking at some of the models that have worked in Connecticut with early childhood, but also in other countries. And secondly, don't take your a foot off the gas pedal, regardless of the data. 
to make sure that if we go fully remote the second time around, we mm. do it so much better so that we don't have some of the pitfalls we had in the fall. And, and I think we are working in that direction. Uh, and I want to ask Ryan in just a second about some of the, the health risks. But Jackie, can I turn to you quickly? The, the commissioner has said something here that I think we inherently know to be true, not just in education, but in probably all walks of life. We're not going to go back to normal fully. There's going to be some changes to the way in which we educate students. What do you know about that? What have you heard from educators or from uh, school districts about how prepared they are to not just muddle through another school year with some sort of hybrid model, but to actually substantively change the way education happens in the future? I heard from, a, you know, I, I interview people for a living. <laughs> so I have spoken with a lot of people, both teachers, parents, um, about sort of what they want um, and and what they would like to see as far as the school year goes. And it's all over the board, um, you know, concerns about um, how far a, a child is fa falling behind um, and weighing that against, you know, being from a vulnerable community that is more susceptible to the virus and what does that mean? Um, and so I think that's really where the planning comes in to so that people do feel comfortable returning and that they do feel a sense of um, protection that um, schools will close if it's not safe. Um, and I, I guess what I'm sort of struggling with as a parent myself is, um, you know, my kid was learning to read. He's, he was in kindergarten when school shut down. That's a critical year. And, I, you know, all years are critical. Um, but it, it just sort of broke my heart that he didn't get to see his friends. He didn't get to see, um, have those have those communications with, with, the people, with the very people that he wakes up to go to school with. And, um, you know, that weekly session that he had with his class where he got to see all his friends really was the highlight of his week. And, um, you know, as I was uh, interviewing people for this story, there were so many parents whose kids didn't get that either because they didn't have a device, they had to work during the day when that was going on, or um, they had spotty Wi-Fi and it, it kept signing them out during that time. And so, um, I, I think what I universally heard from people is that there needs to be some sort of connection, whether it be a Zoom call or whether or it be live in person, um, I think is sort of the, the universal feeling that I, I've seen and heard from people. So, Ryan, to pick up on that, though, maybe you can talk about the the differences that you notice from getting kids together on a Zoom call, even if you had 100 percent attendance, even if you had everyone together, what's different about getting together virtually versus to get, getting together in person, especially middle school students, the kids that you teach? I think the, the largest difference um, was mentioned is the, the social aspect. You know, I think um, when we were all learning how to teach, uh, we were told that basically we had to teach a certain way in order to reach our students. And so like small group instruction, feeding off of being in person, seeing, being able to see and learn from people um, that are right across from you. And then when you go to distance learning, some of those things kind of go out the window. A little bit. And now what you find is that teachers are doing a lot of the heavy lifting because they have to make up for that lost area um, that wasn't really lost in the classroom. Like if I give an assignment in the classroom, I can say, all right, here's your task as a group, figure this out. But online I, I didn't have that ability to do that and so um i think that was the biggest thing but also on the flip side 
um, I was able to teach the whole grade at once, which is not not something that you would be able to do normally. And I thought that was pretty pretty amazing for technology purposes because I'm like, oh, now I have every single kid in the seventh grade that I'm able to talk to. Students are able to talk to each other when normally in classes they weren't able to talk to each other because they were in different classes or something like that. So that was that was a pretty good part about, I would say, doing the distance learning is that they had an opportunity to chat with each other through the chat feature and stuff. So like that that was a good part. But definitely there's a lot of uh, methods that weren't able to be explored uh, because of the distance learning. Another good part we've heard, Ryan, is that for some students, all of that social emotional stuff that can be so positive is a big negative. They don't love being in the school classroom. Bullying is a real thing. Um, there's all the um, ways in which you're uncomfortable if you're in middle school. Uh, it seems as though you probably had some kids who thrived in an environment where they didn't have to figure out what shirt they were going to wear every day and whether or not they were going to you know, sit with friends at the lunch table. Absolutely. I think there are some students that benefit from not only there, there are obviously some students that I had who were pretty already to themselves. And so that when this happened, this was sort of like their wheelhouse. They're like, all right, I could definitely do this. This is fine. But there are also some students who would feed off of some distractions in the classroom who then were put in a distance learning environment. And they were like, oh, there's, there's nobody that I need to try and uh, feed off of. Now I'm just left with me and my you know, my intelligence. And they really showed that through distance learning because some of the work I was getting back from, from many students, I was like, man, if, if this were, you know, regular school, you know, I'd be telling you, this is amazing. I'll be putting your work on the board. I, I would be doing all these things. Um, and so I was really impressed with that aspect where students definitely stepped it up and they took it for what it was. I, I'm wondering, Commissioner, if you can talk about that. There's some positives that we maybe take take away from this a little bit because we've heard for years that um, managing classrooms can be one of the most difficult tasks, especially for new teachers. You're managing things a little bit different way. You don't have the distractions. Are there some positives to learning online? You know, there's always positives to, uh, some positives to learning online. I, I wouldn't say that for the majority of students, this was the preferred method. You know, I'm sure uh, Ryan students and, and high school students in particular uh, really miss that social. And let's remember, schools is not just academics. It's it's the extracurricular activities. It's getting out of your comfort zone. It's those, those relational, um, that re emotional intelligence that students develop, right? Um, are there benefits? There are. Uh, Ryan spoke to, to some of those. Um, you know, students were able to pick up on things uh, quickly or, or go back to a lesson that might have been pre-recorded or have links to different reteaching strategies or work in groups in a way that they might not have in the past. As Ryan mentioned, he was able to speak to all his students. So there might have been groupings there that wouldn't have existed in the schoolhouse. Um, there are some benefits. I think, you know, we, we not only in education, but we have to look for silver linings at times while recognizing that we want to take the parts of the silver linings that we like. I really enjoyed spending more time with my family in the beginning when there was a stay-at-home order. Um, but I also recognize that um, as we move forward, there are certain things that I want to keep and certain things that I recognize the importance of how we had it before, as much as possible, try to get back to that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny you say, I enjoyed spending time with my family at the beginning. I think a lot of us felt that way. 
right? And then I, yeah. over time. <laughs> I see, yeah, right. No, you know, I do totally enjoy it. Um, I think it's, we got to the realization that this is going to go on for much longer. And I think that's when it started really, uh, you know, people wanted just to get back to some level of normalcy. Jackie, I'm wondering what we learned about um, families that have multiple children. Ryan gave us a really great example of something that he was able to do that he wouldn't previously have been able to do, teach to an ins- entire seventh grade, right, in, in a remote environment. The thing I think about, though, is you've got a family with, say, two or three kids, different grade levels, maybe going to different school districts because of the some of the options that we have. Jackie, what do we know about the ability of parents and students to navigate the fact that maybe somebody's got to be on online at 10 o'clock for a math class while somebody else has got to be online at 10 o'clock for a reading class? It seems as though that's an impossible thing to juggle. Um, I interviewed a woman. She's a teacher in West Haven. Um, She also has two children in two different school districts, um, Mara Rabinowitz. And she... um, it was a juggling act for her. I mean, we have to keep in mind that people are home still having to work. Um, many teachers um, have children that they're that they are having to help navigate. You know, we've deputized um, parents to also become teachers, almost um, sort of help navigate some of the tech technology and you know. Um, kindergartners don't naturally know how to use a laptop. Um, and so there was a, a huge learning curve with those sort of things. Um, and so Mara, um, she's an English learner coach, um, a bilingual teacher um, in in West Haven. And so she was having to, between um, phone calls, reaching out to families um, who weren't um, fully participating and saying, hey, how can I help you um, get what you need so that you're able to, to participate, was also having to um, get her, I think it was a sixth grader son, um, signed online in Fairfield schools, and her other son in a Trumbull school um, had more worksheets. So, um, you know, it's chaotic in homes right now, trying to, with especially with young children, um, to be able to navigate sort of that work-life balance of making sure and, you know, parents are feeling guilty right now. You know, I've I've also heard that from a lot of parents of, you know, I feel like I'm I'm not able to fully invest myself into into helping with my child's education either because, you know, I don't know, you know, if I was asked to do common core math, I would have no idea what I was looking at. (laughs) Um, So there's that. Um, And then there's also, you know, language barriers as well for for many families, one out of every 13 families in Connecticut, their primary language is in English. and so you also have some of that trying to navigate the online world. So, um, you know, it's just a, it's a complex um, nature of getting kids online and, and having school at home. Yeah, something from your, your piece uh, from that mom, that teacher that you uh, interviewed that st- stuck with me, a quote here. She said basically that her, her older son had a little bit more structure in his schooling. But for my younger son, she's uh, just sort of told, you know, kind of go on whenever you want, she said. It's night and day and really, really unfair. It's really disappointing. School is not just about giving kids work to do and then having them complete it. You need a teacher on the other end that teaches them. Ryan, you're the teacher on that other end. I, I'm wondering uh, on that that issue of uh, parental involvement, that's a big issue right now. We've always known that parents are going to help with homework in a traditional model, right? Well, now it's 
parents helping on a daily basis. And some parents, because of their work schedules and all sorts of things, are more able to help than others. Yeah, I think that was one of the, the biggest pieces uh, between districts and families and what they're able to do during the pandemic. Because a lot of the urban districts um, and a lot of the districts that are on the low, low, lower socioeconomic um, level are, are also all essential workers, essentially. They're, they're the ones that are showing up to a lot of the stores that we're shopping at, or they're the ones that are showing up to the hospitals and et cetera. And so a lot of parents weren't available to monitor their students um, and what they're doing online. And some students had, or some parents had to probably stay home and say, okay, I have to work with my younger child, but they also had problems with the technology because if the students didn't know how to use the technology, then the parents definitely didn't know how to use the technology either because they haven't used it when they were in school. And I think that was a, a huge barrier um, with our urban districts as well, is that they weren't like most of the parents, most of the parents now were not taught the way that their students are taught right now. And so there's that streamline of, well, this is how I was taught, so this is how I'm gonna teach you, is kind of broken because of technology and because of how things have gone. But then there are districts who didn't have access to that technology for whatever reason. And so now that line is broken. And I think that's part of the problem. So uh, Miguel Cardona, how do we deal with that? As you say, we may never go back to normal. We have um, students who are needing to learn in a new way, teachers who are needing to teach in a new way, but this requires a whole different level of involvement from, from parents. And that's frankly a gap that's a lot harder for you to close. I think Ryan said it perfectly. Probably almost every parent in Connecticut wasn't educated in the same way that their kids are being educated right now. How can you possibly expect them to help with the math or the any other homework because they don't have some of the same background? What do we do about closing that gap? So oh, um, I think in March, I remember March 12th. I, I remember that day vividly. There was a conversation, uh, a superintendent phone call, and we had a, a state epidemiologist on there. And, you know, when superintendents heard what they learned, you saw schools closing. Within a week, everything was shut down. So it was an instant shift over. You know, we're fortunate in Connecticut uh, that everyone has really done their best to try to get our numbers where they are. We need to capitalize where possible on whenever there's in-person to plan ahead and say, as, as Ryan alluded to earlier, we can't go back to a sudden disruption like that and not be prepared. We know for Jackie's uh, young one there that if technology is not the right answer, that in the fall we should develop, we should be developing tools so that uh, her child can continue with the reading and maybe start helping parents understand with videos of how their district is engaging technology differently. With a little bit more time, maybe professional development series for families, um, you know, uh, you know, Zoom 101 or you know, but I think you, you bring up another issue. So if you have siblings that are sharing one computer or one phone and everybody's doing the lesson at nine o'clock in the morning, those most of those siblings won't get access to it. So what we're trying to invest in is saying there's going to be uh, a commitment from the governor to close that digital divide. You know, I, I think it's a finite number. Connecticut is small. We're not talking about Texas, California, Connecticut. 
530,000 students, the surveys that we got show that there's an obstacle for uh, learning and technology for about 50,000 that it's an obstacle. Mm -hmm. So how do we close that? Not to say that that's that's the only number, we need to get more, but if we close that, we could be in a better spot. But it's not just about giving the device to the kid or the internet access, it's about good content. And I, I haven't heard much about that. And I think you could have connectivity, you could have a device, but what you're logging onto, if those are not high quality materials, the gaps are going to remain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we try to do also is develop quality content for free for districts so that students in districts that don't have a good uh, system already set up have access to high quality standards so that parents are not having to remember how they got the instruction and teach it that way. Um, you, of course, as you talk about closing the, the technology gap, it's particularly acute for some school districts, but it's something that if you want to solve the problem of having multiple students in one household, all having access to the technology, there is going to be a cost involved. One of, I think, three stories that Jackie published yesterday in the Connecticut Mirror, which you can read at ctmirror.org. I'm reading here, additional cost to reopen Connecticut schools during a pandemic, $420 million. Um, Jackie, it's a lot of money to educate this way. It was a lot of money to educate in the traditional way, but now there's all these other layers. Can you just quickly go through some of the additional costs that schools have already incurred and that they may incur coming up in this new school year? Sure. Um, You know, reducing class sizes. I remember interviewing the superintendent in Hartford and they costed out the cost that it would they would have to just reduce their K through three schools by three students to bring down each class to 21 students. And and that cost was $3 million. Um, I don't know if they ultimately went with that plan because that's a pretty hefty price tag. Uh, but it, if we're talking about reducing class sizes because it's not physically possible in, in just the construction of some of these classes um, to socially distance, even three feet apart, Um, some of that is because districts are moving forward with class size reduction so that they can physically space students out more. Um, Other costs are things like plexiglass um, to protect, um, you know, the front office staff from from when visitors come in or if they have if anyone needs to come in and and you know gloves PPE all of those sort of things so um, you know there's a there's a lot of additional costs um, school buses however I've I've been hearing that there's not a lot of availability for extra school buses in some parts of the states you know there's not a lot of school buses just sort of sitting idle waiting waiting to sort of get contracts um, so a lot of the costs I mean there are some additional costs with that um, for things like um, monitors of, of buses, but not necessarily new um, routes for additional buses to come online. So there's, you know, there's a host of costs. Um, the technology costs, and the commissioner can probably speak more to this, um, the, the, the majority of the, the technology costs that were reported came from the um, districts that have historically been under-resourced. Um, and so I think that's part of the plan is to help close that divide so to help bring students yeah. back online. Um, one of the questions that I would have um, for the commissioner would be, um, you know, if if the intention is to encourage districts to stay open as long as possible, if it's safe, I guess I'm just sort of curious 
how how do you prevent sort of a domino effect of school districts closing one after another if you know the nearby district um, closed down um, because a student showed up or someone's in their family had had COVID? Um, one of the things that happened last spring was you know there was a domino effect and there's no judgment there, um, but I guess I'm just sort of curious how sure. that's prevented or if that should happen. Right. You know, and I, I want to just preface that by saying we're we're in a once in a lifetime, let's hope, right, uh, situation where there are no, there are no answers. There's no playbook for this, and we're um, recognizing that no solution is going to make everyone comfortable, um, and there there is no easy answer to this. I think everybody acknowledges that, and yet it's still very difficult. As as a parent myself, it's going to be very difficult uh, for me to move in a direction that's anything less than what I experienced before uh, with school. So the decision, so your question about the domino effect, um, we're really trying to stand up health data indicators based on the three, four months of what we know about COVID, the spread, to give um, thresholds for districts to start thinking about when it's appropriate to close and when it's not appropriate to close. Um, you know, we had last night, uh, a team made up of epidemiologists from the State uh, Department of Public Health, epidemiologists from um, Yale uh, School of Public Health, looking at different models so that we can give districts some threshold. Now, I say that, but I also know that, you know, if there isn't, let's say there's an outbreak in a community, right? Um, that community should be able to make decisions with input from their local health department on what's best for that community. I think that's the message that we needed to get across yesterday is that who's in a better position to make a decision about health and safety in that community, given the, the context too, right? If, if I have a school with 100 teachers and um, 20 of them are not there for one reason or another, that's a health issue. It needs to be a local decision to determine that. I think not being honest about that is when you increase fear that someone that's far away is making decisions about health and safety. So to the domino effect, clear standards um, and the realization that it's our responsibility to educate children um, as best we can in, in person. I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at some of the comments and some of the questions that are coming through. Um, you know, this is really about giving kids an opportunity to, to grow and thrive. But, but I recognize we were the first to close and the last to open. So there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of concern and, and uncertainty that might drive a district without good benchmarks to move in a direction. We need to make sure that we're relying heavily on our health partners to help us make decisions. And we need to have clarity and communicate with families so they feel comfortable with the plan in the district. It if, if it's important, as, as we are now saying, that the local districts get to make this decision based on good data, why was the initial decision made to say all schools should open and come in person? We wanted all students to have an opportunity to come in person, um, and the data suggested that we should be planning for that. Um, I think if we came in and said, plan for about half of your kids, Imagine, you know, how difficult that would be if we got to the point where we still felt uncomfortable with that. I do feel that we should be planning for worst case scenario and best case scenario. But what we did learn, 
and we said from the beginning we're going to re revisit this, you know, based on data, right? Not just the health data, but what we heard from districts. And what we heard from districts, you know, I got Danbury High School with 3,000 students in it. They did their best. They hired an architect uh, to come take a look at it. We recognized when the data started coming in and our conversations with teachers, our conversations with superintendents, that there are some places where you're not going to be able to do that and maintain those mitigation strategies that we think are the priority. So um, I think the intent was always to say, let's get as many kids back in school. We need to aim high, but have backup plans. And I think that's consistent with what pretty much every other state has done. Um, at this point, we're recognizing that one size does not fit all, that we have some very small schools. And, you know, when we were talking about graduations, I had superintendents that had high schools with a graduating class of 500 and superintendents with a graduating class of 27. It's not the same. You might be able to get away with one in one place and not yeah. in another. Will, will you concede, though, and I'm sure you've heard from parents, will you concede that sending one message first and a different message now is a bit confusing to parents who were already confused? I heard from a lot of parents who said, I can't believe that they're saying we're going to go back to school like normal this school year, and now it's not happening. I this is pretty confusing to people who are already kind of stretched thin. Let me, but we also we heard know, some parents say that, like, please take my kid back. I know. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Listen, we also know that we have the, unlike many other sectors, we had to plan two months out. We're predicting, and we, we know as difficult uh, as it is, we know that there's fluid. We said it's going to be fluid. I mean, in, in Connecticut, we've been so much more fortunate than many other states but we're trending similar or better than we were a month ago but what we're hearing from district is listen in order to maintain that health and safety that we're talking about we can't do that so i recognize the challenge it is for families i get it they're thinking about work they're thinking about what am i going to do with my children but we did say from the beginning that we're going to see how things go and it's going to be a fluid and i'll be very frank with you it could change between now and the beginning of the school year um but if districts have three plans, they can navigate between the plans based on uh, the health indicator. Um, I understand yeah. how challenging that is. Ryan, I'm wondering, could you comment on that could, from a teacher's perspective? Uh, how are you feeling about the way in which the school district, your school district in Bridgeport, or the state is is looking forward to this? Because obviously you got to prepare for a, a school year that could look a number of different ways. Um, I'm just going to speak for like, many of the teachers that I've spoken to and that I know um, that a lot of us are worried for a lot of different reasons. I think one of the reasons why we're worried is because like we know, like I teach in Bridgeport and I know that returning to school in Bridgeport is not going to look the same in other districts, just based on access, based on all those inequitable factors that are in place already um, that no one in place right now had anything to do with creating but it's still a problem that needs to be solved. And so I think that's one of the biggest worries. The second worry is like, well, if we do say a hybrid model or something like that, does, does that mean I have to create a distance learning lesson and a live lesson? And how, how much work is that going to um, put on my plate? And then what about access to materials, PPE? Do we have to pay for that out of our own pockets? Because normally we are paying out of pocket for other materials yeah. that, um, we have to buy for our students to, to learn just in regular, no no pandemic considered. And so do we have to come out of pocket for PPE? 
if we come out of pocket for PPE, what does that mean for our technology needs? Does that mean that we don't get the Chromebooks or the devices in the hands of students because we have to pay for wipes and, you know, things to clean the classroom with? Um, and then a lot of other teachers are worried about their own households. They have children as well. They may or may not have compromised um, immune systems as well. And so they're going to put themselves at a little bit of a risk and their homes at risk because they're also going to teach and then they're going to go home and then their students are going to their districts to, to learn. And that's, there's just like a lot of moving parts to the risk, I would say. And so like teachers are worried and they're worried for a lot of different reasons. They're like, I wouldn't say that I've spoken to a teacher that wasn't worried for at least two of the reasons that I just mentioned. Hmm. We have a question here from James, and it, it sort of gets to this. I'd love to hear your response, Ryan. He says, given the fact that the state constitution guarantees the right to public education, shouldn't we consider public schools to be essential? Grocery store workers, he writes, have been exposing themselves to risk since March. Shouldn't teachers step up and teach in person with, with masks as barriers, just like supermarkets? Your response, Ryan? Um, like, I understand the perspective on that because when it comes to educating students we most certainly need to do that like we there's no there's no choice there um what i will say is that there are a lot of supermarkets in the very beginning who have shut down their stores and have had workers stay home and have had you know certain things in place put in place to protect their safety as well and i think a lot of teachers are looking for that those options they're looking to see hey if i come back to school full force what are what is going to be done for me to stay safe so then i could lower the risk that i'm at and when i go home and i go back to my family and i think that's what teachers are looking for right now um we're all sort of in this little gray area because we don't know what's going to happen these next two or three weeks like dr cardona said like we don't we just don't know this this thing could spike up in the next yeah. two weeks it could go away the next two weeks and so there's just a lot of uncertainty but the bottom line is that a lot of grocery stores, they sell things that you need right now, right? So if you need toilet paper, you got to go get it, right? If you need food, you got to go get it. And I would say that education is just as essential. But given the fact that we're distance learning, we proved that we can do it without showing up. We just need to figure out a way so that everybody could do it without showing up. Because what happens is you have the socioeconomic differences where students in lower district, lower socioeconomic uh, levels for districts, they're not able to do a full force. Uh, Commissioner Cardona, quickly, uh, we got a question here. Can you address what you're doing regarding remote distance learning for special needs? For example, yeah. have you looked into assistive technology such as robot-assisted instruction for children on the autism spectrum? Thank you for that question. Um, without question, students with special needs, especially students with autism, have really been impacted um, significantly. Um, I read a story recently about uh, a family who uh, they're struggling because their child doesn't want to wear a mask, uh, facial covering, and the mother is going out and she's just struggling with that. And so I feel for that, for those families and, and recognize the challenge that they have. So um, with regard to remote learning, I want to kind of just touch upon, just be very clear. The investment, first of all, that the governor is going to be discussing is going to be on closing the digital divide providing PPE and cleaning materials. So Ryan, it, it, absolutely. I heard from a student that said, uh, you know, if I don't have soap before COVID in the bathroom, what makes me think I'm gonna have soap later? So we need to be very clear about saying, no, these are the things that we think are important and we're gonna, we're gonna have to put funding behind that. Um, to the special education question, 
uh, we're working with our partners in the special education advocacy world to try to identify best practices. And, and you know, we really feel that Connecticut right now needs to think about how we're prioritizing our students with special needs. Even if we were to go into a hybrid, how do we get it so that those children have access to in-person learning, even more so than maybe most other students, because they've lost the most. So I want to just identify that we've acknowledged that for students like children with autism, that we need to acknowledge that. As far as remote learning uh, materials, we are in communication regularly with special education directors from throughout the state to discuss what best practices there are in special education. And when, when we find those for remote learning, like assistive devices or those machines where you can press buttons and the students are communicating, th those are the technology that we want to provide funding to support districts to get. Jackie, before we run out of time, what are the big questions you're going to be asking of educators, of superintendents, of parents and students? What are the things that you really want to know about what's happening for this upcoming school year? I would love to know how students who aren't um, able to participate fully in remote instruction, um, given that there are signs that remote instruction is not going away, how students will be engaged. Um, will there be any requirements on districts to ensure um, even weekly contact or weekly efforts to reach out to, to districts, whether or not um, there will be um, some accommodations made to students who aren't um, able to participate remotely. The commissioner kind of mentioned that about special education students. Um, you know, there's just some students who are not, remote education is just not going to work for, um, and if there's any sort of guardrails for those students. Commissioner, do you have any quick thoughts on that? Very quickly, yes. Um, we have to recognize that we had a shutdown in March we're likely not going to be a stay-at-home order. So schools will be open. The degree to which students are coming in is going to be based on data. But schools should be open. We should have access to uh, the technology there for students. It could be very small group if things get really bad. Um, but it could be full in-person if the numbers stay low and we do well in Connecticut. So that's a fluid thing. But I don't want us to assume that the second round, if we have to go remote learning, is going to be as abrupt as the first one. And we have to do better. We have to do better for our kids. Ryan Brown, how about you? Do you have any questions of the commissioner or questions that you're going to be looking at for this upcoming school year that you think really need to be addressed? Um, it's just honestly just trying to reach every student. That's, that's basically what it is. I mean, we someone already elevated the idea that um, special needs students are not getting the support or the um it basically support that they need through this process for distance learning um and also that's just my only my only concern is i want to be able to look at the next district at like fairfield which is our neighbors and be like oh we're we're on the same level i want to be able to to say that as opposed to saying like oh well only 15 of my kids um have chromebooks as opposed to the whole class um like I, that's that's my my biggest concern is i want to make sure that every single student can benefit from whatever we put forward that way the gap could not widen if we are able to or if we have to go to a shutdown but actually close um and keep closing so that connecticut could be a state where every student has equity every single student 
has access and every single student is getting educated at a very high level. And that's not to say that teachers aren't teaching at a high level. We're all doing what we're supposed to be doing and actually going above and beyond to do that. But the resources and materials that we have to do those things, I would really, I, I really want to reap some of those benefits um, that my colleagues in other districts, more affluent districts, are reaping uh, currently. That's Ryan Brown, a middle school teacher from Bridgeport. He was recorded last Tuesday as part of a Connecticut Mirror coffee conversation about education. We also talked to Miguel Cardona, the Education Commissioner for Connecticut, and our education reporter, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas. We got some great questions from our audience, too. Thanks for joining us. You can read all of Jackie's reporting on this important issue at ctmirror.org. Just click the Education tab at the very top of the page. If you're not already subscribed to Steady Habits, you should really do it. It's wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't checked our page out with all of our episodes, go to steadyhabits.org. Our Steady Beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson and recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. Thanks so much to Bruce Putterman, Kyle Constable, Jessica Friedman, and Beth Hamilton. Our podcast is sponsored by the University of St. Joseph, whose master's degree programs help K-12 teachers improve outcomes for their students and improve employability and salary potential for themselves. Our podcast is also supported in part by the Solutions Journalism Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to rigorous and compelling reporting on the responses to social problems. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.